The Toyota MR2 sports car. Lexus, the result of our relentless pursuit of perfection. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Toyota. Let's go places. everybody welcome back to toyota untold i am tyler and i'm kelsey kelsey guess what i got a new car and you got a new car too (laughs) how was it picking up your new car oh my gosh i felt like i really leveled up because i i just upgraded my forerunner and i like shout out to the parts and accessories department for really (laughs) zhuzhing up my vehicle because i had like every accessory possible and i'm thrilled Amazing. Amazing. So both of us were living our best lives. What what was your, your car again? Um, I got a new Land Cruiser, so I switched from Lexus. I'm no longer part of the Lexus family, although I love you, Lexus. I got a Toyota Land Cruiser, and it is amazing. Amazing. I got the Heritage Edition, so it has the cool wheels and stuff like that. So... I just love it so much. So I'm actually in Georgia. I'm visiting my, I brought the kids to visit my parents. We haven't seen them in like a year, but I always laugh because we brought the new Land Cruiser and my dad always complains about the most random things like where cup holders are placed or like how many cup holders there are. Or like, it was so funny that I'm in Georgia because we are talking about the psychology of design and like where things are put and like how decisions are made about vehicles and why things they are are the way they are within vehicles. A lot of people probably don't recognize this, but there's a lot of thought put behind why they put everything where it goes, how big it is, how mm-hmm. big it's not. Like I have a safe in my <laughs> center console, <laughs> which apparently yeah. is important to TRD um, forerunner owners because, you know, they like to do overlanding camping, et cetera. And you have to have a place to put your valuables. And then obviously the cup holder conversation. I have a cool feature in mind where it has like multiple sizes for the cup holders. So I thought that was pretty tight. You can go and get that big gulp. <laughs> right. I'm excited <laughs> to hear uh, from our guests today because I didn't do so well in psychology in college. <laughs> Not not my top subject, but these people (laughs) have really nerded out on what it means to build a vehicle based on human psychology. Awesome. All right. So when we started talking about this episode of Toyota Untold, we thought we were going to do a deep dive into the world of self-driving cars. And that's cool too. Um, Really science fiction turned into reality. But as we started to develop this idea, we kept coming back to how it relates to the world of just human psychology, which, you know, Kelsey, we'll get you there in this episode. We realized that there's this whole world of research and study into the way that people think about, they interact with our cars. And so John Lenneman and Josh Domeyer are two research scientists from Toyota's own CSRC. And they talk to us about the exciting sorts of research that they're doing and the ways that they do it. So let's get into it. I'm John Lenneman. I'm a senior principal research scientist in Toyota's Collaborative Safety Research Center. I've been with the company for almost five years, and I've been in the auto industry for about 20 years or so. And I'm Josh Domeyer. I'm a research scientist. I joined 
Toyota in 2011 when the Collaborative Safety Research Center was kicked off. And so I've been involved in different research initiatives since then and have largely focused on driver distraction and human use of automation as it relates to vehicles. A lot of people are really surprised when they hear about people like Josh and I working in an automotive company like Toyota. Wow, you guys are psychologists and you're working for an automotive company. What do you do there? That's a great question. But before we examine the surprisingly deep relationship between cars and our psyche, we wanted to get to know Josh and John a little bit more. John explains how studying to be a psychologist led him to a job here at Toyota. When I first started my higher education, I went to Central Michigan University for undergraduate studies. And I majored in psychology, minored in mathematics, thought I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. And it it was a path that I pursued up until the last semester of my senior year when I heard that a gentleman by the name of Rick Bax was going to be joining CMU's psychology department. And he was in a field called human factors. And human factors is one of the terms that this field is often called. It's also called engineering psychology, ergonomics, cognitive ergonomics, usability, sometimes universal design. I'd never heard of human factors. And in a nutshell, it's simply trying to take what we can learn about human performance, human uh, cognition, perception, human behavior, and then designing technologies to fit the human, as opposed to just taking an engineering approach, which some people might take as designing the technology and then forcing the human to fit the technology. We are trying to do research so we can fit the technology to the human's cognitive capabilities, limitations, perceptual, behavioral, et cetera. So I gave up on the clinical approach and our clinical dream and decided to do research with him just with a more general master's degree just to get to know the field started doing research actually in aviation. So it started out actually in aviation and it was pretty exciting research. And I've been in love with human factors ever since. It's always amazing to me how far and wide the pull of Toyota can be. John is far from the first person to join us from the aviation industry, for example. Our staff at Toyota come from so many different areas and disciplines besides just automotive engineering. So I was fascinated to hear about Josh's career path, too. I can go back a little bit farther than John, even. I was a computer geek in high school. And so there's a lot of troubleshooting involved in technology. You're installing different things in a computer. Something will break. It's really exciting when you can get it to work. When I went to um, Central Michigan University, similarly to John, I discovered that this same philosophy of troubleshooting can be applied to how people use technology, right? So the most interesting troubleshooting that I can think of is actually examining human behavior and trying to figure out how we can use that information to make technology better for people and also improve their lives in different ways. I began to apply this thinking in the same lab as John to to driving. And specifically, I focused on humans and automation at the time, although it wasn't automated vehicle research. It was more uh, basic research of how technology can guide the behavior of people to make better decisions. And that's evolved over the time that I've been at Toyota, initially focusing on driver distraction, 
And then looping back to some of my initial work with automation and trying to figure out how to make it more compatible with people. As you can tell, Josh and I, we've got a history that overlaps quite a bit. Josh was an undergraduate, I think, when I was a graduate student. So we've got quite the history. And then I spent some time in the automotive industry with another company before I joined Toyota and joined Josh in 2016. If you want to get to know Josh and John a little bit more after the show, we will plug their website so you can learn more. We both have uh, personal videos on the CSRC website that you guys could link to. That just explains more about us and very high level. They're like two minutes each. It's going to be nerdy stuff, but yeah. (laughs) Stuff that I like. (laughs) Oh yeah. We're nerds. I know. We love it. Yeah. Check out the show notes for this episode to find the link to those videos. But first, we wanted to pick up on something that John said there when he called himself a quote nerd. What does being a nerd even mean these days? If you're talking about being passionate about a specific topic, then I guess we're all nerds on this podcast. I asked him if that nerdiness comes naturally with this line of work. The nerdy thing about what we do is taking as deep a dive and getting into the weeds. Like when I say getting into the weeds, I'm not thinking a few weeds in a little pond. I'm thinking just the murkiest water. Like you can barely see in front of you. And we are just deep into that mud. And you could be a nerd to get that deep into something that seems like, eh, just design it so it's usable. Now, you got to be a nerd to understand it's a lot more complex than that and be willing to go into that mud. Yeah, we're literally talking sometimes about when we talk about neuroergonomics, we're talking about brain waves. That's so fun. How, how that can <laughs> influence design, right? Like, and it, it, it's super difficult. And like, neither John or I know, understand all of it. But like, even just attempting to do that, it's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When Google Scholar sends me an alert to an article that talks about an event related potential study and it's the effects and how it's manifested and processed, you know, by the brain. I see that article and I save it. And next thing I've got a queue of like 2000 articles long that I'm never going to read because everything looks so exciting. It's fantastic stuff. All right. Hearing that kind of enthusiasm, I think it's safe to say that John and Josh are both in the right jobs. But I was curious about what life might have looked like for them if they hadn't found their way to Toyota. Honestly, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, I probably would be finishing up an MD program and maybe being like a resident somewhere. I actually contemplated uh, going back to and actually took you know, some classes like actually organic chemistry and stuff to fulfill some of the undergraduate requirements to then prepare for the MCAT about five or six years ago before I found this position at Toyota. And that's how much I love Toyota and, and this position. It was so exciting. It pulled me away from about a year and a half of preparing to take the MCAT to then apply as a 40-year-old you know, student. And my goal there was, though, to look at some of the neurological neurology and and driving. So there's actually some pretty cool driving research that's being done. And we're actually collaborating with one of the groups right now at University of Nebraska Medical Center. And they really inspired me to go back and and maybe uh, pursue an MD. So honestly, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, I would probably not be in the profession. (laughs) I had a similar story as John, which is that I started off interested in clinical also, but it usually becomes very apparent when you're in a psychology program, like maybe there's something else that I can do with psychology that's equally interesting. And I honestly don't know what I would have 
ended up doing. But a lot of what I do right now is is in the robotics realm and technology generally. And I, I think maybe the career wouldn't be that much different. It would just be a different uh, technology that yeah. I'm applying it to. Generally, I think people want to try to avoid having their hobby be their job because you want to have something that's fun. And especially getting into psychology and learning that there were these connections, it was like, oh, okay, I can do something that's similar, but not the same. And so that's what was alluring about it. Thankfully, Josh and John didn't go down those paths and they found their way to the CSRC. They both explained what the CSRC actually is and how it fits into Toyota as a company. Josh and I are part of the Collaborative Safety Research Center, or CSRC for short. CSRC is a research group whose mission is essentially to do safety-related research and push it out into the public domain for the good of all society. We push this out in the form of primarily publications and presentations. So if you Googled CSRC, you might find some research articles or proceedings from conferences that we are authors on. We're not always first authors on these papers. They are in collaboration with university partners. We've collaborated with Stanford, MIT, Virginia Tech, University of Michigan, University of Washington, University of Nebraska Medical Center, University of Wisconsin. And we collaborate with these university partners on a number of different projects and topics. John and I are specifically part of the human technology integration group, which largely focuses on this human factors perspective. The name is meant to evoke kind of this human-centric perspective where we begin with models of human behavior and sort of use that to inform the development of technology. And that's primarily the research that we're focused on. And essentially, what we want to do is improve the effect of technology on all people through developing human-centered solutions, through our public communication, and through education that might may come out of the research that we do. And we're looking to foster innovation of human-centered products, translate like our research, our cognitive, perceptual, behavioral research, sometimes into best practices, guidelines, or standards that can be used by engineers and in development. We also are really trying to use more advanced methods and tools in our research. So a lot of machine learning approaches, for example. And of course, we really value, and this was from 2011 when it began to even today, we want to be advocates for the integration of human-centered R&D type work in Toyota industry and society in general. Yeah, one approach that John and I take with this that's core to the CSRC mission is not only promoting the research that goes that gets published and talked about in the research community, but it's actually designed to also motivate this safety perspective across industry. In partnering with these universities, we can motivate new research topics because we have insight into different industry needs. And then by partnering with these collaborators across the country, we can marry the academic and the industry needs together in a way that might motivate other people to do research into these topics. It's not just we're focusing on Toyota. We really are focused on society as a whole and really promoting that safety message. Working for the greater good is truly a noble cause, but as much as Toyota is striving to achieve what's best for the world, there must be a benefit to sharing our knowledge with competitors beyond the humanitarian side of things. The consumers of our products, the drivers of our vehicles, we understand that they don't live in a bubble. Not everybody drives a Toyota vehicle as much as we'd like it. Not everybody does. So our consumers, the drivers of our vehicles and our products, 
live in a greater society. And it's to the benefit of society and Toyota consumers and drivers themselves if we push this knowledge into the public domain so that the whole driving ecosystem, I think across all industry, I think everybody would agree, and I'm confident in saying this, that Zero Desk, they actually have a consortium, Road to Zero, right? That that is a goal everybody agrees that we should strive for. By pushing this information, the research that we do in the public domain, what we're hoping is that goal someday can be achieved. And that there are some things here that are pre-competitive in the sense that they require some coordination amongst automotive manufacturers. Like a good example is some of the research that I've been focused on is how automated vehicles might interact with pedestrians. And if you have thousands of vehicles that choose to communicate in different ways, it could be very confusing. And the automotive industry always has been focused on safety, but when we get together to promote these, these sort of standards or ways, best practices, we can actually improve safety for society in general. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we do too in the standard space is actually commonizing like how you talk about things, right? A lot of terms and definitions development, which isn't necessarily super entertaining, but if you have people using different language when they're talking about safety, or even different methods of measuring safety, most of these get really complicated very quickly. And so having that common language about and even common goals as an industry, it can always help focus attention a little bit. And that reflects one of our missions, which is we're advocating for human-centered approaches. And so it could be in the form of just using a common language, really trying to push that. There's other people in the Collaborative Safety Research Center that have funded some of these organizations to actually produce data sets which are publicly available. One of the biggest challenges with human research, this is often the data isn't available because it's proprietary within companies. And so one of the things that we've done is leverage some of our ability to fund lots of human annotation of data and other things like that to actually produce data sets that can be analyzed by the whole community, leading to just more robust knowledge. Another example of the pre-competitive nature of our work is uh, in some of the consortiums or organizations we're a part of. We join various groups with other OEMs or suppliers or companies like MCity or MIT has their AVT consortium. AVT stands for Advanced Vehicle Technologies, but the idea is groups like that are pulled together and the various researchers, engineers from the different companies get together and talk about at a pre-competitive or non-competitive level, what are the issues that we're all facing? And what knowledge do we want to gain through the research that MCity or MIT's ABT group or other groups like that can provide for us and do for us? So there's lots of examples of not just Toyota, other companies doing work in pre-competitive ways. So this is where it gets interesting. We always think of psychology just being about theorizing and exploring the ways that our brains work. And that doesn't necessarily gel with examining reams of data and the more hard science approach that seems to be involved here. Our work is actually a lot harder than some people might think. It's not just getting like opinions and thoughts and feelings. We're doing some pretty intense, deep dives into human cognition, perception, etc. Of course, that type of research can be hard. But the really hard thing, I believe, is taking what we learn about human cognition, perception, behavior, and churning those into engineering requirements or product requirements. So if there's anything we know, 
whole heck of a lot of variation in humans. It's a theory-driven science. We don't have a whole heck of a lot of laws about how the brain works and how people behave. So it's fuzzy. It's an art when we're trying to take what we learn about human cognition perception and turning that into product requirements for engineers to then actually build a, a system that you know has hard numbers behind it. One example of that is actually, there's a lot of theory about how the human eye perceives the world and how you make decisions based on that information. So you can think about as something approaches you, it expands in your visual field, right? You feel a threat because that's coming toward you. And so we can take things like that and model the human behavior and how they assess risk and all that stuff based on these perceptual processes. And then we have to turn around and say, okay, now that we understand the psychology of this, what does it mean for how you design this technology? And you might design it in a way that maybe it amplifies that, that risk or provides some information that augments the, the risk that's being evaluated by the system. If something's approaching quickly, you might alert somebody. It's that simple. But tying it to these core psychological concepts is really important because without theory, you don't have any anchoring to how to design the next product, right? You, you might design this product fine by testing this one versus this one, but then you have to design a new product. You have to say, oh, okay, what did we learn before? We learned this about human psychology, and that's how you carry from one concept to another one. It's fascinating how different areas of automotive research have evolved over the years. We're always pushing to innovate and use the most cutting-edge technology in every field that we can. So why should psychology be any different? Given how long they've been at the CSRC, I was excited to find out how psychological research has evolved over the last decade. The last 10 years or so, we're not just changing, say, interfaces, right? We're changing the, the task itself, right? The, the task is changing, going from manual driving to in the future state, maybe pure automated driving. And then we've got this phase that we're starting to live through in between, which is this interchange interaction between the vehicle and the human. And so the fact that the driving task is changing, starting to change so dramatically, just adds a whole nother layer of complexity on top of it. We are evolving into this scenario where it's like this human automation interaction and even Toyota has adopted this philosophy of kind of a relationship with automation in, in terms of like teammate and that sort of thing. And it's really changed how we have to investigate these topics from a human behavior standpoint, because it used to be the case that you could do this, the scientific thing that should be familiar to a lot of people, which is you change a variable and you see how that affects them. But now we're entering this space where we have AI that's interacting with people. There's no variable to change. It's a relationship where they're developing over time. People are evolving with the technology. And so it ends up being the situation where you can't do these little small tests, but you actually have to model not only the human behavior, but you have to have a model of the automation behavior. And then you see how those models interact. And then from that, you can gain insights about what safety issues might emerge. And it's a really fascinating view of, of technology interaction because it, it's very difficult. And it really leverages this kind of troubleshooting thing that I was talking about where, where you really have to dive deeper into the theory and try to understand what is it that we're trying to help people do fundamentally. Josh said models of human and models of AI or the automation. But how do we build those models? Those models are built on data. 
So we need to gather that data and make sense of that data and feed that into the model. So there's just an absolute ton of work to be done. It's clear that data is an incredibly valuable resource for Josh and John. And it's one of these things where the more of it that you can get, the better. Quality data on driving habits must be difficult to obtain. Our time inside our cars is usually quite a private experience after all. I wanted to know how Josh and John actually go about finding the information that they need. Sometimes we'll just do types of survey type research. The research that I described, we primarily did what we call naturalistic uh, driving research, where we observe drivers in their environment when they're actually using the system or driving on the road. We can instrument the vehicles in many different ways. Uh, a lot of our collaborative partners do this for us, and then we'll monitor drivers out there on the road for extended periods of time. I mentioned you know, we can use video cameras. We can put a bunch of different sensors on the cars. But basically what we're doing is monitoring human behavior in the environment it's actually used. Some of our research also uses simulation. One of the tools that's emerged in the last probably five years that has been very valuable for vehicle pedestrian interaction research is actually virtual reality. So we can actually put people in these immersive environments. We've used driving simulators that we'll say are pretty low fidelity, which is literally like a gaming steering wheel and a monitor on a desktop with the gaming pedals and brakes. We've used those before, whereas we've also done research in some pretty high fidelity simulators where you've got 360 degree simulation screens around a whole vehicle that's in a room where the steering wheel, their actual steering wheel and actual pedals, it's like pretty much a real car with really high resolution graphics. And we can collect in these simulators a lot of driving performance measures. Of course, we can also at any point collect subjective data, some you know, a scale and a scale from one to seven. How did this affect you or those types of Likert type questions? Somebody has the VR headset on and what they're seeing is a vehicle approach them and they have to make a decision about whether or not to cross the road. And we can actually use these to manipulate little variables to figure out how a vehicle should stop to be communicative to the pedestrian. So if it stops like this, it's really clear that it's stopping. That's great. And I feel comfortable crossing the road. Whereas other stopping uh, styles might make the person feel uncomfortable. And you can't really do these in the real world. And that's why it's really useful to have these virtual reality setups for this purpose. You can test out scenarios that you observe in the real world that might not be safe to do. And you can essentially make simulate the data in a way that allows you to identify some safety issues that might not emerge if you try to do it as, as an experiment. We've also done research where we've collected what we call physiological measures. So EKG or EEG, so your heart rate and other heart-related type measures. EEG is electroencephalography. So we'll say brainwave activity or other sweat rate, breathing rate, et cetera. You may have heard recently there's some information that it's really hard for automated vehicles to get enough data just by driving around because the number of miles that you need to travel is just so high that you can't possibly test every safety scenario. And even the things that we're testing are not these sort of average effects. There's outliers. They emerge because the environment and other vehicles and your vehicles create a situation where there's some sort of safety issue. And so the way around this is through these simulation methods. 
And by simulating, you can examine some of those outlier cases that, that really matter in the real world that you wouldn't have previously been able to do. It's because we're developing these simulations and, and we're using more machine learning and similar types of approaches in our research. It's even more important that we get out into the field and do this naturalistic type research where we're collecting data on the road. Understanding how people drive by using sensors that are integrated into the vehicles or by, and this is where getting to Josh's point earlier, sharing data. These data sources that companies and research institutions are putting out into the public domain now, it's extremely important that we continue to do that because we have a whole bunch of tools now that can capitalize on so it's a really, a really cool ecosystem, the scientific community consortium. I don't know if people even realize, like we are all essentially working together in the spirit of CSRC. Now that we're using the most up-to-date research methods and technology, how are we actually applying that information? What are we doing with it? Josh gave me an example of just one way the CSRC's work has influenced the automotive landscape. When I joined CSRC in 2011, I, I already mentioned that I was focused on driver distraction research, and that began to evolve in about 2014, 2015, when we started to recognize some uh, challenges with human use of automation. And so at that time, I started thinking deeply about how vehicle automation will interact with uh, pedestrians. And it, it's interesting, because if you pay attention a little bit when you're driving on the road, you'll notice that you move in certain ways to accommodate other people. You, you might, in fact, stop and gaze directly at a pedestrian to indicate they, that they can cross. And so there's a lot of these social behaviors that people exhibit while they're driving. And the real challenge and the thing that was fascinating for, to me from the beginning was that these become explicit with automated vehicles. You don't have a human to imbue these social behaviors in the driving, it's, it's now automation that has to imbue the, the automation with these social behaviors. And around 2015, 2016, we began some research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to actually look at how people behave on the road as a means of communication. So not necessarily hand-waving, eye contact, all of those things, but simply how do you move the vehicle to communicate? And this led to a bunch of other projects, one with the MIT Age Lab, where we actually looked at real behaviors on the road and saw the different communication strategies that people used. And one of the interesting things that came out of this early research is that people rarely use gestures or eye contact or these sorts of things to communicate. And generally, your communication is more based on how a pedestrian positions him or herself on the curb or how the driver decides to stop. And a couple of years later in 2017, I joined the University of Wisconsin-Madison to pursue this topic. And what we've discovered in the last few years as I finished my PhD is that this behavior component of communication is key to making uh, human-compatible vehicle automation. And even extending beyond that, I think most people think of this issue as safety and efficiency, which of course are very important for this. But we started to look at different concepts that might also matter, trust or fairness in terms of how long the pedestrian or the vehicle is waiting, or comfort even, because these things ultimately influence the acceptance of the technology, 
or even whether we're improving the lives of everybody that the vehicle might interact with. And so I continue this research topic to this day and continue some work with the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the MIT Age Lab. It's obviously a good thing to do great work in any subject, but what good is all of it if the end result is creating a product that the general public has no interest in using? Like too few cup holders, too many cup holders. (laughs) And what about if they simply don't know how to use it? Acceptance is really important because that eventually, we believe, leads to utilization of the technology. And in the end, that's what we want to do. We want to develop technology that people use, and then they reap the safety benefits by using that technology. Technology in general is getting, it's both getting simpler and more complex, which is weird, but it's true. The one thing that's, I think, universal is there's some level of understanding of technology that's required to operate. It could be very minimal, it could be a lot, but at some point you need to understand how a system works to be able to use it in some way, shape, or form. That's often referred to as a mental model. So a mental model is just one's understanding of system operation. So I did a lot of research starting in like 2016, 2017, and still continue to do the research today, looking at mental models. How do people develop their mental models? And how do these mental models evolve over time as people use the uh, technologies that are integrated into the vehicle? Now, of course, when we're designing systems, when systems are designed, you want them to be designed so that they're as intuitive as possible, right? Ideally, someone can take something out of the box. Someone can just hop right into it and use it, and it's just immediately understandable. But as technology gets more complex, that increases the odds that somebody might have to have some form of education or something like that in order to use the technology. And so we're doing this research so that we can if consumer education is needed in some way, shape, or form, create more effective consumer education programs. The idea of consumers not understanding their technology really interested me. I'm sure at one point or another, we've all lived with a gadget where the clock is permanently set to midnight because we can't figure out how to set it. Honestly, when daylight savings time happens, I just wait until it comes back. There you go. Not because I don't know how to change it, but because... It's just effort. (laughs) Okay, so apparently the CSRC has done specific studies into this very thing. We observed drivers over six months, about 55 drivers, and we got them about a week or two after they purchased a Lexus or, or purchased a vehicle. And for 10 or 11 of them, we installed various sensors into the vehicle, cameras, accelerometers, things, GPS systems, things that can track how much you're braking, how hard you're braking, how fast you're going, and of course, get some sort of video image of the uh, system around them, of the environment around them. So in this research, what we did was basically, we asked them immediately after they purchased their vehicle, what do you know about the ADAS technologies? What do you know about lane centering? What do you know about adaptive cruise control, lane departure warning? collision mitigation systems. And we got some sort of assessment of what they knew. And then we were able to track them. We interviewed them every two weeks over the course of up to six months. And uh, we're actually able to see what was their understanding at the beginning of the research. And then how did their understanding of the technology evolve over time? So what was their understanding at the end, at six months later? Something else we looked at was what sort of sources of information did they actually turn to when they were trying to learn about their technology over the course of six months? 
Did they get some sort of like dealership education when they actually purchased the vehicle? Did they go watch a YouTube video or read an article or something like that? Or how often did they even just simply check their owner's name? And we learned a whole bunch of stuff. This research project found that we can all be grouped into one of five groups of people based on how we learn, how we engage with or consume educational information. John broke each category down for us. We have some, what we labeled as expert, skilled, or moderate learners. And these are people that have some knowledge. Experts have more knowledge than moderate, obviously, and skilled in between, but some knowledge of the system or of the systems and the technologies when they first purchase the vehicle. And then they have an ability to learn about the technologies over time. So their mental models, their understanding of the te technologies evolve pretty well over time. And that makes sense. A lot of us can get in the car and we know a lot about the technology already because we've seen commercials, et cetera. And then we can learn about it. There was a group of people that didn't really know anything about the technologies at all. But good news is they're still able to learn. But then the final group, and this is the interesting group, is what we called misinformed. These are misinformed learners. And these are individuals who didn't really know how the systems worked when they bought the vehicle or six months later. They couldn't learn about the technology because they didn't want to learn because they thought they knew everything they had needed to know about the technology in order to operate it. And they were pretty darn confident in their own knowledge, but their understanding of the technology was actually wrong. So there's this cohort of people that we've identified that maybe are probably prime targets for future consumer education. The Greek philosopher Plato famously said, the only thing that I know is that I know nothing. It sounds like the opposite of that is true when it comes to misinformed learners. I wonder where that misplaced confidence stems from. One theory is that we apply our knowledge of other similar technologies on the assumption that they'll behave in the same way. John told us about how technology has to be designed to anticipate the ways that it may be misused or not fully understood. More often than not, we have to use the technologies people are already familiar with as a springboard. The technologies that are more consistent with technologies that are already in the vehicle, people tended to grasp. So for example, adaptive cruise control. They've already had cruise control for a number of years. So even if it's their first time driving a vehicle with adaptive cruise control, they were able to get the gist of it. There's other issues with adaptive cruise control that we are researching, and I think other companies are researching as well. And that's the gap, acceptance, and stuff like that. But in general, people understand how it works. Now, whether or not they decide to use it, that's another story. So a collision mitigation system, right? So basically some sort of technology that helps you mitigate a collision if you're going to have one. Those are, are newer, especially relative to cruise control. And the problem is they're relatively infrequent. So even if they did get some education, let's say the dealer did a great job immediately explaining what a collision mitigation system is and how it operates, they may not actually experience the collision mitigation system for four months. You know, so by then they don't necessarily know how it works. Now, the question also becomes, do they need user education? Do they need to understand how that works? Because that is an example of a technology that essentially maybe does the work for you. So that's whether or not people need to understand it. That's another question. So that we're trying to uh, answer. So to, the question is, 
to what extent do people actually have to understand the technology in order to use it correctly? And that, that applies to essentially everything. You don't understand how your cell phone works in super, super great detail. I'm sure there's a certain level that you're kind of like, I know it enough so that I can use the app, so I can make my calls, et cetera. Maybe troubleshoot a little bit, but beyond that, I'm taking it into the repair shop or I'm just trading it in and getting a new model. A lot of people don't know how a refrigerator works, but they know how to put their milk in and out of the fridge. So there's a certain level of understanding that people have to have, or they tend to have for all system operations. It's almost as though what the general public will accept or embrace from technology doesn't necessarily correlate with that technology's value or reliability. An intuitive decision obviously makes sense to us, but it might not always be the right choice, logically speaking. We had some research where we actually manipulated how the vehicle moved back and forth in the road. And so if the vehicle held straight right in the center of the lane, people's trust scores were higher than if it were to meander maybe a little bit. People had lower trust. And what was interesting about this is this trust rating was related to how much the drivers decided to look at the road. I think people find this interesting because once you start thinking about these systems of interaction between the environment, the person, and the automation, you start to think about solutions differently. You're thinking like, how do we make the environment or the person or the system all together lead to better safety outcomes generally? Collecting data like this may be incredibly useful and worthwhile research, but I wanted to know how often John and Josh discover a breakthrough where they can really celebrate. Do they ever get to crack open a bottle of champagne? Popping bottles, Kelsey. Champagne campaign. (laughs) I would say that there's uh, not necessarily a lot of firm answers in our research theory, and it's driven basically because there's a whole heck of a lot of variability. So the second we try to present something as a firm answer, there's always this exception to the rule. And the thing is, we don't want to ignore this exception to the rule. That's not in the spirit of our profession, human factors. It's sometimes called the universal design for a reason. We try to capture as much and be essentially inclusive as much as possible. So what we really try to do is present our data and create a business case for a design in some way, shape, or form. But we need to balance that business case. We, we need to balance our recommendations, guidelines, et cetera, with other factors. Let's say just even like a design feature. We want people to use the technology. And the reality is if people think a technology, a feature is ugly, if there's some sort of aesthetic component to it, maybe that influences whether or not they actually use the technology. I would like to think that aesthetics doesn't necessarily influence whether or not someone's going to use the safety feature. So we need to balance our recommendations with those things. So in the end, our goal is to optimize utilization of the technology. John is right. There's a lot of variability in human behavior. We don't have the same luxury that more hard sciences have. We, we deal in the world of uncertainty. One of the challenges in our industry is that you can still build a product potentially without our input. And that's unfortunate when hopefully that doesn't happen, but that's the reality, right? And so what I consider myself sometimes, I have the role of a marketer. So I, I generate results and maybe in my mind, I can see how they apply to the product and the product development process in some way, shape or form. But now I need to turn around and sell that 
and market that to whoever is the recipient of that data of those findings. Hopefully, that's not too hard of a sell. Matter of fact, hopefully, that's not even a sell that's necessary at all. But the reality is sometimes we need to illustrate how important our findings are. Before we spoke to John and Josh, we assumed they'd take cars and technologies that already exist and conduct their research around them. But one of the most interesting things they told me was that that's not the case. They go so deep with this stuff that there's almost no way of knowing what problems you're going to ultimately have to go and solve. Doing research is the only reliable way to discover what the problems are in the first place. We're constantly trying to push both as in our profession and in Toyota, learn as much as we can about human cognition, perception, behavior as early as possible up front, and then design the solution based on our learnings. One of the things that has emerged from the vehicle pedestrian interaction research is early on, almost every discussion of the topic that I saw started with the premise that we needed to introduce some sort of signaling device to the outside of the vehicle to communicate with pedestrians. So you might you might think of you have turn signals right now. You might think of like a new system that kind of informs pedestrians when they should cross the road or something like that. But one of the things that has emerged based on some of the CSRC research and based on research by others is that it might not be the case that these signaling devices are needed. They typically have a benefit for acceptance but they don't often result in a benefit for crossing behavior or leading the uh, pedestrian to check more to make sure that there's not another vehicle. Th- these interfaces simply don't do the types of those types of things. And what really emerged was this vehicle behavior perspective where people base most of their decisions on whether to cross on if the, the vehicle has stopped or its stopping pattern. That's an example of people coming up with a solution without necessarily at a deep enough level understanding exactly the problem, the the human perception, cognition, behavior type problem. So we are constantly both in Toyota and human factors, professionals in general, trying to have an influence as early on in the design process as possible. But it isn't all so purely theoretical. Josh gave me another example of their research that has a direct impact on the way the cars are designed and built. I wasn't involved in it directly, but early in CSRC for the the human factors research in general, we did a lot of work with the MIT Age Lab on the distraction potential of, of technology and vehicles, specifically voice interfaces and some visual manual interfaces that people might interact with while driving. And some of the tools that we developed during that to assess things like cognitive distraction and visual manual distraction, they they didn't necessarily end up into a vehicle per se, but those methods are generally used to evaluate the interfaces and improve their safety. And similarly, there are other projects within CSRC that aren't John and mine specifically that sort of deal with understanding the safety benefits of different technology, usually kind of test methods that uh, might be used by a third party organization to test the safety of something. But generally, I think our projects have more of this high level. They might not be the product itself, but they might have led to a better, safer product. There was really fascinating early research that we were doing in vehicle automation, probably back in 2014 or 2015 with Stanford University, where we had people 
and remember, there's very little research at this time about human interaction with specifically automated vehicles. And we set them up in a simulator where we removed the sort of steering behavior that's necessary for controlling the vehicle. And one of the observations that we made at the time is that when you remove this lateral control from their interaction, all of a sudden the driver checks out because they're not in direct control of the vehicle. And since then, other research has emerged talking about this coupling of sort of perception and action that could be really important for vehicle automation. And it wasn't because of this research, but many other researchers have looked into how to develop interfaces to improve that connection between the driver and the vehicle since then. But to me, it was really interesting that this the small result about lateral control of the vehicle and how it led to complacency with the automation at the time was really interesting because you could feel it when you were in the simulator. And as I said, there, there's been a lot of good research since then on interface design and how to keep people engaged in driving and that those sorts of topics. We've spent a lot of time going over what the CSRC has done, so it was time to shift gears and turn our direction to the future. Josh told us about the issues faced when trying to ensure their data is relevant and future-proof. In general, technology will almost move quicker than the the behavioral science around it. And so it's like this constant catch-up. And I'll reemphasize it. This is one of the reasons that theory is incredibly important. I think sometimes engineers look at theory and think, oh, what is it? What does it mean in in practice or whatever? But in the way that we talk about theory, it's not applied versus theory. It's theory is the basis for how you make decisions about applying things. And it's the tool set that human factors has to inform good design. And so that's really the struggle that we face is we have to look at new technology and say, okay, we have all this theory that's been built over the last 50 years what about this applies to this particular product? And then the products are changing. And the products are changing faster than humans. Humans don't evolve nearly as fast as technology. And yeah, the theory is foundational. So getting back to what we talked about earlier, developing models of human behavior and models of automation, right? The theory is the foundation behind that. And so it's got to be solid. And, and we're always looking to see if we can contribute even to the foundational theory in some way, shape, or form as well. So we are nonstop students, to be honest. So we need to stay on top of the research. I know Josh and I, you know, we read way too many journal articles. My Google Scholar feed and all that, that stuff is just constantly kicking research articles at me. And I try to read as many as I can because there can be some real enlightening findings that can have some real application to, maybe it's not the product, but maybe it's to our research process. So maybe it's to the development of a model that we want to test. So we are nonstop students. By the end of our lifetimes, we'll have done the work of probably about 20 PhDs. The nonstop student thing to me is very enjoyable. In CSRC, I had the opportunity to get a PhD. There's a reason that I pursued it, and it's not it's not necessarily just a good uh, sort of career learning opportunity, but it's really about learning in a fairly challenging way, the appropriate way to do the research and actually contribute to the research community and to be part of it. And curiosity is like a, a major component of this sort of job. So, yeah, 
Yep. And and it's really working in science, right? Yeah, you'd like to think that by the time someone graduates with a bachelor's degree, they can read a, a, a journal article and really take away what is the meaning from it, et cetera. But I think it really takes digging, get, getting deep into the weeds in a topic in a certain area to be able to really understand the science behind it and yeah. then how to apply it. You probably have to read a hundred papers before you understand where an individual paper fits in the grander vision of science. Yeah. Yeah. And that's important, but just that simple awareness is important. We need to understand. I think Josh and I both know that we read one article and it says that they found this. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the end all be all. That's one article. That's one finding in a pool of, let's say, 20 articles that maybe have come out in the last month. But out of those 20 articles, there's maybe another 80 articles, journal articles that didn't get published because they didn't find any significant findings. So we also need to understand that, <laughs> then figure out how does the fact that we understand that impact what we're going to do from a making recommendations, et cetera, to product development. It's hard enough to predict the future at the best of times, but it sounds like it's almost impossible in this field of research. That said, we love a challenge. So I wanted to see if Josh or John had any guesses as to topics they may study going forward. Cup holders. There's a a concept in human factors of operational, tactical, and strategic behavior that people exhibit. And if you think about, this isn't universally true, but if you think about vehicle automations operating at this operational level, where it will prevent you from getting into a crash or those sorts of things, but it doesn't operate at this tactical or strategic level. It doesn't choose your route or it, it doesn't strategically go a little bit faster to get in front of the car to stay out of the blind spot or whatever. And that's really interesting from a human factor standpoint, because probably, and I I don't think there's any data on this, but I would think that a lot of crashes and safety issues and comfort issues are actually at this strategic and tactical level, whereas a lot of the collision avoidance stuff is at this performance level, right? And so as human factors researchers, we have to think about control at these different levels to encourage behavior, make them more natural, make them more accepted by society. It's a really interesting way to look at these problems. And of course, we had to bring us back to the original idea for this episode, self-driving cars. When you see the future depicted in movies, what are the two things you always get? Flying cars, self-driving cars, right? Flying cars are still firmly in the world of sci-fi, but self-driving cars are kind of already here. I wanted to know what John and Josh think the future of automated vehicles looks like. Do we believe that there's going to be a future state where everybody's driving an automated vehicle? I don't know. You know, that I think a lot of companies might say that's the goal. But the reality is it's a ways away. The turnover in the fleet is years and years just to turn over 90, 95%. And there might always be, and who knows from a policy perspective, Are they going to allow and how they'll handle someone that wants to drive their 1960s, 70s muscle car and they like the manual driving? And as a society, do we want to afford that? I don't know. That's probably policy decisions that need to be made. They're probably thinking about it now, need to be made years down the road. But what that does is it illustrates that there's what we call sometimes a mixed fleet society. And that is a huge challenge where you've got a society, an ecosystem where there's people driving manual vehicles. There's people driving a, in 
in the industry we call level one or level two automated driving, which is simply there's some automation, but the driver really still has a control of the vehicle. But then maybe there's a future state where then there's also vehicles, a small percentage where the vehicles do most of the driving, that's higher level three, four technologies. That state, it's probably going to, it's coming. It's essentially here already, and it's going to stick around for a very long time. So it's definitely going to stick around for as long as I am in the industry and have a job. That So I can't forecast, and I don't think we can or should forecast what the future state's going to be, except I feel pretty comfortable that this mixed fleet society, which is going to have a whole heck of a lot of challenges, a lot of research questions that we need to address, it's going to be around for a very long time and potentially maybe forever. But then how do you design the infrastructure, how a manually driven vehicle interacts with a fully autonomous vehicle, that type of stuff. All right, that's enough about the future. The CSRC exists in the here and now, and they're doing great work right this second that we want to champion. John tells us all about one of their current projects. With the University of Michigan, we're doing some research in an area called roadmanship. And roadmanship is essentially what was introduced by Rand Corporation a couple few years ago. And it's essentially just adding a layer of courtesy on top of safety. It's not designing an automated vehicle so it's just safe, but it also designing some automation so it is courteous to other drivers. We don't want our automated vehicles to make other drivers feel nervous, for example. So in this concept of roadmanship, we're exploring this this concept with the University of Michigan. And right now, what we're doing is looking uh, through video feeds that are just posted on YouTube. There's a video feed from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. There's another video feed from uh, a town in New Hampshire. The Jackson Hole, Wyoming is a video feed of an intersection where we're monitoring drivers as they make left turns. The video feed in New Hampshire is it's a camera on a pole and it's a roundabout. It's actually a five-point roundabout. It's a pretty interesting roundabout. And what we're doing there is simply trying to understand what are, how do people accept or reject the gaps that they either turn left into between two vehicles or merge into roundabouts. And the idea there is if we understand how people drive, how likely are they to cut into or cut off or even We've all had scenarios where you're driving down a road and a person takes a left turn in front of you and there's plenty of space, but that person's going really slow. It's come on, get it over with. Now I have to slow down. That's bad roadmanship. Another example of bad roadmanship, according to the you know courtesy definition, is in highway driving. You know, maybe there's a little bit of traffic. You definitely don't want to tailgate. Some people might say it's bad roadmanship if you're leaving too big of a gap. There's been situations probably for some of us where we're following a vehicle and the vehicle we're following is leaving such a huge gap between its vehicle and the vehicle in front of it. That might be considered bad roadmanship. So that's the next thing we're going to look at. So we're trying to understand driving behavior and create models so that then we can maybe feed that into future automated driving systems. 
Oh my God, I love this. The idea of taking all the bad drivers we put up with when we get behind the wheel and replacing them with courteous ones sounds almost too good to be true. Well, maybe it isn't. After all, it sounds like the CSRC has some pretty impressive backing at the moment. Some of the projects that we are working on right now uh, are actually in collaboration with other companies and with some federal institutions. Actually, I'll say specifically the USDOT, Department of Transportation, working with them through what's called their University Transportation Center. So we have partnerships right now that exist directly with other companies and with the federal government all working the same problem, answering the same questions. The UTC partnerships are specifically designed to have industry-government collaboration through these entities. Yeah, we often get asked to, if not participate on projects, to support in some way, shape, or form, whether it's just some sort of written letter of support just to give our like moral support. Yes, we think it's a topic that should be addressed. Sometimes we're asked to actually participate, and it doesn't necessarily have to be through, they're not asking for funding all the time. So sometimes we fund a lot of projects. I do have projects that I've worked on where we're not funding. We're just actually providing our knowledge and expertise. And that goes all the way back as far as long as I've been in the industry, that sort of collaboration between various sort of government organizations. They were not kidding when they were talking about this being a deep dive. We hope you've enjoyed nerding out with us about this topic. There's so much to explore here and the landscape of this research is constantly evolving and changing. So who knows? Maybe we'll come back to this subject one day. Thank you so much to Josh Jomeyer and John Lenneman, who are our guests this week. And thanks so much for listening to another edition of Toyota Untold. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Tyler. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Toyota Motor Sales USA Incorporated and may not be reproduced or redistributed in whole or in part without prior permission of Toyota. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and our hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota. Please note that Toyota is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved worldwide.